Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in bodywork, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. It was such a pleasure to be in conversation today with Michael Shea. Michael is one of the preeminent educators and authors in the fields of somatic psychology, myofascial release, and cranial sacral therapy. He leads seminars throughout the U.S., Canada, and Europe. Dr. Shea received his master's degree in Buddhist psychology at Naropa University and a doctorate in somatic psychology at the Union Institute. In 1986, he was certified as one of the first full instructors of Upledge's cranial sacral therapy. Dr. Shea has been a Florida licensed massage therapist since 1976, and he was an advanced rolfer for 20 years. He's a founding member of the International Affiliation of Biodynamic Trainings and the Massage Therapy Body of Knowledge Task Force, or NTBOK. Dr. Shea brings a unique cross-cultural perspective to teaching health and healing with a teaching style grounded in a spiritual practice of developing compassion with the use of manual therapy. In today's conversation, we spoke about metabolic and vascular health, social media on our health and perceptual awareness, his new book coming out shortly, working with ancient cosmological systems and modern incorporations, intentionality, and and so much more. It's always just a real pleasure to sit in conversation with someone as, as wise as Michael and just soak it in. So I hope you all enjoy this talk as much as Nikki and I did. So with that, let's begin our talk. Hey, Michael. Hey, good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Andrew. Hi. Good morning. I'll share this. This was sort of funny. Was I was thinking today because uh, I've just sort of moved back to Boston and I'm looking to meet other practitioners. And there's a few SI people, but there's not a lot of biodynamic people. And I was thinking today, I was like, it's great to have a talk with with Michael, um, but maybe we could have like maybe I need to talk to some more biodynamic people because I, I was thinking I was like, well, Michael Shea's a rolfer, but it's like, no, you're not. You're a biodynamic person who who was a rolfer, who might still use those, but you're a, you know, a biodynamic person. And it was this like weird thing of, I have typecast because I'm such in an SI world right now. I'm trying to break out. And I was like, Oh wait, no, Michael is exactly what I want to speak to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, Well, um, you know, it's the, the thing that I'm trying to do with my book and and it started some years ago because my sister and I started um, and wrote a book and it, it actually got all the way up through the editorial process with the contract and then it was rejected. And I, and I think because there wasn't enough data at the time to support the premises that we were talking about. And so when we let's just talk about the bad news first and. It's now known that 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. And in those markers, you know, we hear about it all the time. So if you think the planet is in bad shape, I can tell you right now that the human body, especially here in the United States, is in serious, serious trouble. Um, When you've got 88% of, of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. And then just uh, last month, Another huge piece with a very big cohort came out. Only 20% of Americans have optimal heart health. That means 80% of Americans also have, as part of that metabolic problem, they have bad heart health. And unfortunately, the follow-up to that was that it's the same for American children ages 2 to 19 that only 20% of American children have optimal heart health. So so if we start with that, we really take a look at, well, what is going on? And let's not say just the United States. This is a a planetary problem. It's an international problem. Uh, We can talk about sources and things like that. But you and I and, and Nikki, we're body workers. 
And so what does that mean when someone comes in? What does their body feel like? What does their fascia feel like if you're a fascia worker? If you're a biodynamic practitioner, what what does their fluid body feel like? What, you know, what does their interstitium feel like? And so forth. So the problem is with the contemporary client that when we put our hands on them, where do we go and what do we do? Because the fascia is interfered with in terms of its metabolism. When you have that much of a metabolic problem, the metabolic problem is because of complex inflammatory conditions that are being sourced by primarily a person's diet. And that means primarily the breakdown is happening at the level of the gut and at the level of the epithelium of the lining of the gut. This is all well-established science right now. Um, Report after report after report. I read another report yesterday. And when you you get to see that, and I might ask both of you, is the work you're doing with the fascia effective? Or do you see that when you manipulate fascia, that there's a delayed response or that it just the fascia isn't responding quite the way it used to in some some clients and some patients. And so, you know, I want to hold that as a question because that's what I see when I have my hands on someone and their interstitium is locked up. What we call in biodynamics, the fluid body, the original body, the embryonic body. Michael, could you share a little bit about what you are, uh, what you're finding in regards to... um regards to that like how would you say that it's it's changing or different or not responding in a a different context what's happening is um the international community that i i help supervise and that i'm also a part of is we're trying to find out what do we need to do with our perceptual process with our hands-on skills in order to facilitate um a greater response towards the health. So in terms of the fascia, I'm just seeing that when I manipulate fascia, which I do periodically with clients, it just gets sticky and gummy and and has lost its resilience um, or gotten very, very stiff. Dr. Jealous said that the fascia um, will basically turn to, to soft tissue, to hard tissue and, and, and get very stiff and bound. And so we're I'm finding that with clients. Um, well, it's interesting. So I had an interesting experience this summer. And one thing that you touched on was perception. So I worked on um, a handful of like preteens, adolescents, and also was around some of my nieces and nephews and their friends who are in this like preteen age group. And, um, and they have phones and they're fixate on them. And one um, family member of mine, who I spent a lot of time with, it was wild because I, um, this, she had a hard time orienting to horizon because there was always this drop down and, and it's like, so like unconscious, like simple things from like getting out of the car to getting into the house, like the phone is always in the hand. And when there's like a, a dull moment per se is looking down and like, what, what can you see? And there's like, what are you gaining from like looking at your screen for those like seconds that it takes to get to the car? But it's just like, that's one example, but it was constant, constant of like, not taking time at looking horizon, not being aware of what's around you and finding the joys of things that just happen in nature that can entertain you and not what can be instantaneous from the phone. And, and seeing, you know, some of my nieces and nephews or cousins, how they're hanging out and bonding is they're all in one room looking at their devices <laughs> and I like had a struggle because, you know, my kids have iPads for definitely, you know, I have one kid who is now getting into games and stuff and we were traveling and, but 
I really was like more strict than I normally were because they were like, we were all together to hang out as a family. And I have memories of hanging out with my cousins. I mean, we didn't have electronics and stuff like that. We got bored and we entertained ourselves. We came up with creative, fun things. And it just, I could just see with this kind of, you know, and I'm including my kids and also trying to prevent it as much as I possibly can. But of this generation who more so, I know we've been seeing it coming, but I just, for me, it was just so in my face and, and working with some of these bodies too. And it was just like, there's like this idea of like, being entertained by influencers but yet when I've asked questions of like what do you notice about your body where are you in space what does it feel like I don't know I don't know so many I don't knows and I'm like ah (laughs) like you're like getting like drowned by all this information and but yet there's like a hard time of forming an opinion about self so I think there's a person that like Lack of perceptual environment for, or I guess it's there. It's just like, the question is, you can have a perceptual enriched environment around you, but where's the willingness to engage in it? Right. Right. And, um, you know, there's a lot of new literature on what's called interoceptive awareness and and basically what you're talking about, it, which is also very clear in the literature, is especially with teenagers, but it's a, it's a broad spectrum now. People are really out of touch with their body, you know. So this conversation is whether or not you want to, you know, put it into a pathology or, or however you want to do it. But people are out of touch with their body at every level. And the, the electronic phenomenon is, is just one one way that that people get out of touch with their body and interoceptive awareness basically is based on the self-preservation instinct and so people's self-preservation instinct um, has greatly diminished and what that means is it's linked to the interoception of hunger satiety and elimination people have lost touch with their gut and the core of their body and they've also lost touch with their heart. Um, it's just a very interesting dynamic um, when you see that the heart health is also so bad. And But this is just, as you said, it's a perceptual shift where people are spending more time focused on a screen or an electronic device that takes their nervous system and displaces it outside of themselves and so it's completely imbalanced their interoceptive awareness. Robert Schleip has a really good article on interoceptive awareness. It's a little bit old, but it's still very valid in terms of what he has to say about this, this core level awareness and how important it is to build that in. Because I really think in the long run, whether you're a rolfer or whatever our, our handle is on our, our career, our business is getting people somatically organized and getting people in touch with their body interoceptively. And it's through this that they can take ownership of their body. Basically, what we're seeing is a pandemic of people not taking ownership. When you have that much time and attention on a screen or something like that, it means pretty soon when if and when, God forbid, you get ill seriously ill, it means you're going to be reliant and dependent upon an external medical authority in order to figure out how to take care of your body rather than the innate self-healing mechanisms that are built into our body, that inner knowing of how to heal from the inside, that yes, we may need input from the outside to balance, but we still would need the agency and agency is is the is the big big discussion now in the literature and the loss of agency within any medical problem and that is my ability to choose my perception of how i want the environment to be and how i want to engage in the environment based on my soma so well, can i can i add something to that michael sure. is i hearing it cuz I, I love this sort of stuff so um 
I, I think what you said there is really, really, really uh, spot on. And when we're talking about people on screens, what we're really, I think, we're talking about is um, the person interacting not with a with a the, per se the phenomena. There is a phenomena of the screen, but a phenomena of a phenomena. They are are interacting with the 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 forest through a screen. They're not actually interacting with the forest. So they are one step removed from the actual thing, the actual environment. They're watching a they're watching videos, they're watching these things that are artificial. They're 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 representations of things, but not the actual things themselves. So the human organism is getting uh getting confused in a way and it's losing a sense of that agency because no longer interacting with the world they're interacting with a version of the world that is that is tailor fit in a way it's made for them it's designed to 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 hit the highs and hit the lows i mean that's what what television is for the most part i mean i'm I'm categorizing a lot. They're they're very well. There might be there might be a, a nature television that's just <laughs> a camera watching the woods, but even that is not watching the woods, you know. And so, I, I've recently gone a little bit into David Abrams' books and and his sort of view of eco psychology and and looking at that, which ties in here. But I I hear it as we lose our agency because we are no longer interacting with the world as it is, but into into these manufactured versions of it. And so we're, we're, we're losing our sense of ourselves from that. And that's, I think, where part of the agency is lost. We're, we're confused. Yeah, and we're very confused um, about what our sensory level um, and our sensory systems via interoceptive awareness of the body, we're very lost with that. We, we cannot, we don't have a good sense of how to interpret sensation um, we're over-reliant then on the nervous system. Um, we're over-reliant on the external world. You know, it, it, it's just, it's a, it's a big sense of imbalance. Um, and here we are, you know, our, our, like I said, our business is to bring people back into a balanced relationship with their body, um, with sensation, with interoceptive awareness, with agency, to build a sense of agency. And to build a sense of, of critical mind and critical thinking, I don't think these, I don't think these devices build critical thinking or, and critical mind. Um, and unfortunately, you know, you hear a lot of the, the conspiracy theories, and I don't know how much they are conspiracy theories, but you know, depending on what people are watching, they're they're also being programmed a certain way, depending on what they're looking at, what they're watching, you know, and so forth. I mean, the biggest problem with again back to the basic problem with metabolism if we get down to the 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 problem with body metabolism that as i said the body metabolism is dependent upon the food we're eating and the the research literature is so abundantly clear now that processed food is is the major problem um the amount of processed food that people are eating is just highly destructive to the gut and it's highly destructive to the gut creates inflammation creates hyperinsulinemia creates all these different metabolic problems type 2 diabetes cardiovascular disease i was talking to another body worker this week who just di got diagnosed with cancer very sad situation uh, so i'm on a support team for her with her journey through her metabolic challenge now that is you know, transformed into a, a serious cancer, terminal cancer that she's working on. So these are these are situations that, you know, there we sit here, it's an it's an easy fix. I follow the the work of Robert Lustig. Uh Lustig is a, a pediatric endocrinologist at the University of California, San Francisco. And he is like the most amazing guy when it comes to metabolic syndrome and in calling out these problems and he's basically started a website called real food you know where do we start with all this well it starts with real food and it starts with clear perception you know if you're if you're a body worker what i did with with the biodynamic work was i took all the principles of cranial sacral therapy and I simply applied it to the cardiovascular system. 
because the literature is very clear that the endothelium of the arteries and veins is the main co-regulator of homeostasis in the entire body. And so if you've got a breakdown, you know, in the gut, then you're going to have a breakdown with the endothelium throughout the body. So that's what what I'm doing is creating a, a manual therapy. And as it comes through very, very loud and clear in the book that I've got coming out, uh, which they just rescheduled for November, of really getting our attention uh, as manual therapists on the cardiovascular system as much as we can. And then obviously promoting real food and, and helping people get into a, a context of real food. You know, beyond that, you know, it depends on what your skill is to help someone build up their own sense of agency with this and, and how to support someone in their interoceptive awareness. It's a lot of work. I thought I was going to be retired. I turn 74 next week and it looks like I'm going to be working a long time. <laughs> but I like we're, that. we're glad like for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad for that. I think your work's great. And I, I want to highlight sort of how I was hearing something you're saying, which is, while it, you know, in some way it is simple if we eat better food, um, yet if we're eating worse food and we had a more regulated nervous system, we would we would feel that our stomach would say, "Hey, hey, this isn't this isn't good." We and, you know, and we'd have that feedback system. But because we're, we are we've lost as a society, society a lot of that interoception. It, it, there's there's it's comp I would say it's complicated in that it's never just one thing, and so what while while helping the food is very important, it's it's like if we help the food, but we still don't have the, the nervous system cueing us, we're, we still have work to do. And so it is this whole way of, of, of looking like, yes, we need better food. Yes, we, we need more interoceptive. Yes, we need to be aware of what our heart is actually doing more, more just general awareness. Um, is that is that sort of yeah that that's really a good summary and and interoceptive awareness has two parts it has the part um you know with with the body and and basically homeostasis and how the body itself um runs homeostatically but it also involves allostasis and the allostatic responses of the central nervous system in the brain and basically that means that the brain has to take all these signals around self-preservation and make predictions about how to manage and get food, uh, how to eliminate, how to what behaviors do I need to manage getting the energy to the mitochondria of every cell. This is what we're talking about in terms of metabolism. So, and the literature is really clear that this is basically we are under a threat of self-preservation right now. Our self-preservation instinct is is really being threatened right now because of the the way food's been hyper-engineered to be addictive and so forth, the way social media has become addictive and really um, created allostatic problems, physiological problems with with everybody's brains. Um, and Nikki, I really, I really feel for you because, you know, I'm around teenagers. I treat teenagers myself and I just see how big of a job it is nowadays. And I just can't imagine uh, reflecting on, on when I was a teenager and what my parents had to go through with me. And we didn't have we didn't have that that sort of situation. Well, but thank you for like, pointing that out, because yeah. because I, while it sounds so simple, it is it is complicated. And I, you know, I'm sitting here th like thinking of like, where, where have I wrong? Where have I right my kid? And, you know, ultimately what he is exposed to is, you know, my husband and I is doing, right? We're the one that's purchasing it, allowing it. And it is, um, and it, it's, it's tricky because while I, well, you know, and I feel like I'm very particular of the games, but there's like these Minecraft games, there's like these building games. And while I feel like, oh, you know, innocently like, oh, he's building. It's not like those shoot him up, highly graphic killing games. He's learning how to build. And th there is this whole creative realm that is with that. And then, you know, and he also plays with Legos and builds like we have Lego masses everywhere. And there is this balance of where you, I mean, how deprived do you take it like, 
great for your kids. So then when they are in the world, and I mean, we are in a technology driven world. So how do you find the appropriate balance? So when he is looking for a job, he has some skill set of working with electronics. And that does kind of start, you know, who knew when I was in second grade, learning my home keys, how quick of a type or um, keyboard writer I would be for college. And I mean, those are like just kind of the baby steps to it. And um, so while I feel that everything that we're talking about is so spot on, and and I think this is such an important conversation, but finding a a way to have it where it's not parent shaming or shaming where the people are on their electronics. It's like illuminating the importance of why we shouldn't be on them so much because of the deeper effects it has to us. And then how that is a ripple effect, how that affects our, you know, immediate community and then the greater community and globally. Well, wouldn't there be markers, you know, usually when I talk to parents, you know, markers like are their grades failing in school, you know, because that's that's a red flag. Um, Are there behavioral problems? That's a red flag. You know, are they getting into drugs? That's a red flag. Um, You know, so there are red flags. And if none of those red flags are really flying and they're in and they're engaged with with social media, you know, <laughs> much to our chagrin, that maybe a part of it is okay, um, but it's still detrimental to the development of their their nervous system to, to possibly to some degree. But how are we going to know that till later? You know, my older brother, no, my younger brother Brian in Boulder, I, the kids didn't, his kids didn't have that um, level. They had those violent games though. And, and I remember talking to Brian and, and my sister-in-law and just like, wow, these are extremely violent games. And they're playing them for hours every day in high school. And my brother said, well, that's that's the way it is. I mean, their grades are good. They, they're not in trouble and, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And this is the way they're entertaining themselves. And both of these kids now are in their 30s and they're doing just fine. They've got they've got. I mean, fine. They've got good jobs. You know, they're they're making a contribution, and they're not in trouble, and they're not doing drugs. So, and they they haven't bad. they have they haven't done any violent action. They haven't gone on on killing sprees like the game said. I mean, I I actually think there's a there is a correlation between sort of these two talks we're having at the same time. One about the, the social media aspect, and one about the the heart health and all of that that's going on. And which is that there are uh cultural or institutions that are that are set up and they, they become the, the the norm so it's become the norm that children are will have screens and do this sort of stuff uh and it's somewhat implied that that's good because it's the norm and it has a reason that it's been because it's the norm but the fact of the matter is it's just the norm because it's come to be that way and similarly there's this other aspect that we're talking about which is sort of how people have lost interoception and are are actually very unhealthy. And the reason why is because they have been more or less following the norm of what has been the institution, what has been how food is is packaged and put out. Um, I mean, I don't mean this is not hopefully sounding very um, conspiracy because it's not it's not conspiracy. It's it's how structures are put in place and how we as humans uh, exist within them. And and for both for both how I'm hearing it as um someone sort of in between both sides or is how can we work with what is right now and find ways towards better health uh, as, as we perceive better health to be. Uh, I don't actually know that there's going to be an answer. Um, You know, there's going to be answers. And and like you were saying, Michael, to some extent, we're not going to know until we, we do it. So you've been doing this for so long, you know, because you've been going down and you've been seeing the the changes that have been coming through your manipulations and through your, your biodynamic work. And you've also been seeing, as I hear it, like there's been change in people's fascia from these other ways. And because of what you've been doing, you have the awareness 
of that. And so you're able to to see, whereas most people don't because they're they're oblivious. Uh, that's my way of trying to tie the two sort of what seem like abstract thoughts, but to me are actually very, very similar. And I don't know how that sounds to the both of you. Well, the way I would, it might be a good time to um, not shift, but there is a balance here that we're 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 trying to name. We're we're trying to say, you know, there's a uh, where is the balance here, and the instinct for self-preservation and interoceptive awareness. I mean, that's the primary driving mechanism of our organism. That is it, and it is in balance with what is called the self um, transcendence, the instinct for self transcendence. You know, when you and I get sick, uh, and I've had COVID this past week, I'm just uh, getting over it right now. I wasn't sure I could do this uh, podcast this morning, but my symptoms started to clear yesterday, and I'm feeling pretty good today. But thank you. Um, within the context of, you know, the survival, and you really, you know, we could get into this whole Armageddon thing, you know, the planet's under survival, and it's, you know, doom and gloom. Well, yeah, I mean, we can go with doom and gloom, but within that context, there is this instinct for self-transcendence. This is a this is a massive spiritual awakening that we are undergoing right now. You know, my book says that the metabolism of the human body mimics that of the whole universe. It is that complex. Um, it's extremely complex. And so consequently, we, we need to have other strategies, other perceptual, you know, practices and so forth built into and evolving with our manual therapy in order to support people um, in their the spiritual process that they're undergoing. And so by taking someone, you know, and having your children, you know, go out into nature. I remember living in Boulder um, with a woman and her her, her two kids. Uh, and we would go camping every weekend. We would just get get everybody out and go out into the woods, go out into nature. And however we can reconnect with nature, which is a primary way of reconnecting with one's spirituality. But like the Dalai Lama said, there's there's over a thousand different spiritual aptitudes. And how can we really, within this context, it's so easy to look at the client and say, oh, you got big problems. You need you need to make this change and you need to do that. And you need to do this. But on the other hand, as Andrew Taylor still said, I see the face of God in every client, every client. I, that's what I see. And if we can see that as the first thing, if we can see the, the spiritual process, it's actually called spiritual formation. That no matter where somebody is at, physically wise or otherwise, that they are in a process of spiritual formation that leads to a process of spiritual maturity in which they can then begin to have a supportive connection that is more direct to, to the sacred. And that's really what I think the perceptual process is really about, and I've seen that in biodynamic practice over and over again, when people get up and they say, oh my God, I felt the flow of grace in my body. I felt the flow of love coming through my body. And I'm just feeling the long tide. You know, they're feeling it through their lens of their spiritual aptitude. So I know that that, that instinct for self-transcendence is alive and well in all my clients. And that's the beauty you know, in the biodynamic world of, of coming into relationship with the slow tide and with the dynamic stillness, the two main perceptual processes, because that has the potential to awaken and support this self-transcendent nature that all of us have, this longing to get out of the suffering that we are undergoing, whether it's with our diet, with our emotions, uh, all of that dynamic that goes on, the, the daily fluctuations of our anger, um, all of this that goes on uh, daily. So that's where I see this balance coming in with, with the interoceptive awareness. It's the interoceptive awareness now of spirit and of heart. 
and of feeling one's heart. And I do mean that literally. I teach people how to feel your heartbeat. That's Sufism 101. If you can feel your heartbeat without taking your pulse, that the literature is very clear that that builds empathy. It builds empathy for yourself and it builds empathy for other people. So the the way out of this dilemma, as a lot of the researchers say, is in. And for me, because the, the gut is such a huge challenging area and so scary to so many people, especially around dietary stuff, I usually just start with, you know, feel your heartbeat. Let's just start by feeling your heartbeat, the potency around your heartbeat, and seeing if you can feel your entire vascular system. And that's that's really then dovetails with that instinct for self-preservation and interoceptive awareness. And it also gets the spiritual formation and spiritual maturity that's necessary for people. Does that make sense? Oh, so much. I loved how you packaged that. Yeah, and I was definitely sensing my heart <laughs> while you uh, were speaking and also interestingly noticing my vascular system where I wasn't noticing it. So thank you for some new tools for <laughs> things I need to work with later today. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because, um, you know, the, the book I'm doing, actually, I just found out two weeks ago, it's already been printed and it's in a warehouse waiting for distribution, which is not going to happen until uh, apparently the first week of November when I get back. But um, the the key here, and there's many keys, as I said, and I borrowed a lot from not only the uh, Ayurvedic and Tibetan systems of healing and beginning to implement that into the context of biodynamic practice, but also um, some of the Taoist principles. Because I really feel like we're at a time now, and I've heard other people say this, all the teachings that are out there, all the ancient teachings, we need them now. <laughs> and we need to get them integrated as soon as possible, as soon as possible. So part of what I'm doing with, with my book is, is getting just the basic pieces on the five elements, how you recognize the five elements and, and how to work with the, the spiritual Shen, as it's called in Taoism, that from the back of the heart, that's where primary respiration moves the blood. And so the, the, the sense of feeling your heartbeat, feeling the potency of your heartbeat, but then there's that third level of feeling that subtle movement of the tide that is originating from the back of the heart, you know, moving through the blood, but also moving through the heart field. You know, you can see that in the Heart Math Institute work. Uh, they have some beautiful videos of how that, that tidal, slow tidal movement moves through the heart field and how we really connect with other people at an empathetic level and at that at that that compassionate level through the heart so bringing bringing all of these tools in are are very important and i i will say that um the the thrust of my teaching right now is bringing forward uh, a sense of cosmology which i talked about in the first podcast um you know, biodynamic practice has an orientation to originality, as Dr. Jealous defined it, and that is the originality of the human embryo. So we try to touch the human embryo that's present in the human body as it is right now, because Dr. Jealous pointed out that in embryology, we are actually perpetual embryos. We never actually finish our embryonic period, which is another discussion. That's another podcast. but. The point with the challenges that we're having with the human body these days is that we need a, a different uh, orientation to support the embryo, and that's the cosmological orientation. So that also is included of the vascular tree being the tree of life. So I make that correlation from the book of Genesis. And then once that correlation can be made and you can begin feeling these and that's the mystical Kabbalah in Judaism. So there's that correlation with the vascular tree in cosmology. 
but also there's a there's a correlation in the Indo-Tibetan system, and that is has to do with the five colors. And so what I'm doing now is teaching the, the practitioners to visualize their heart going through five color changes, um, a pearl white, a dark blue, a bright yellow, a fire engine red, um, or a Tuscan red, as my wife would say, um, and then an emerald green. These are the five so-called colors of the cosmology in Tibetan medicine of the origin of the universe that, that arose from clear light, that the clear light of enlightened mind actually manifests all around us as these five colors. And then the five colors mix with the five elements, and then we have appearance of form. So what I'm teaching then is that we can go through all of these phases of sensing our body, sensing our heart, and then sensing the slow tide of primary respiration. And that has a color associated with it. And you can feel the color moving. And then dynamic stillness then becomes the element of space. And the element of space either is a clear, crystal clear color, or it can be uh, like a pearlescent white, like a moonlight color. So it's beginning to integrate different aspects of cosmology into what we're already doing. And I, I would say, even as Rolfers in, in tissue work, because I, I still do tissue work from time to time, I do use these colors now. I do take a pause and I like to feel the entire fascial system as clear light, just clear, crystalline, pure light, um, in, in, which is a sense of purification in the, in the tantric system of Tibetan Buddhism. So you can begin to implement this already. And so that's where I'm going, you know, with, with the book and with the teaching, um, with these challenges that we've talked about. It, it's, it's a, it seems like a lot, but it's actually very simple. Uh, it does seem like a lot. Um, simple, I think, give us time with it. <laughs> um, most things are simple after you've done them <laughs> for a while, but it's, it's reminding me of a different cosmology, uh, a little re relation with in yoga, in the Samkhya philosophy, and then the later uh, Vedantic and Tantric, but the, the, the out of energy coming in form and, I remember at one point I was going in that way. And now again, you're, you're, you're just giving me so much food for thought uh, and, and looking at that, those cosmologies as a way of, of mapping um, experiences. Well, just question for you, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm so looking forward to editing this podcast so I can actually hear it again and digest this. Cause while you said it's so simple, there's, it's almost like each paragraph is a seed of its own plant <laughs> that's growing and I need time with them. Um, when, when you're when you're doing this color thing, you said like when you're working with people doing tissue, are you doing it or practicing it within you? Are you asking the clients to sense it or both or other? Well, it goes, basically goes into in three stages. I I always start the practice with myself. Um, that's that's the the tantric part of it in terms of meditation. You know, as you sit and you visualize your heart um, of being these five different colors, it's been recommended you do that for a week all day long and then you'll become enlightened. But I love those kind of uh, statements that are made in the 18th and 19th century. Um, so the starting point is is oneself, you know, we of coming into the, the use of the colors has to do with purification. In Tantra, the, the first phase of Tantric practice are all these purification rituals and purification rites that have to do with visualization. So Tantra is a lot about visualization. And so visualizing the colors tends to purify the heart um, and ultimately then can purify the subtle body and then and can then from there purify the physical body. You know, this is what we're talking about if you've got metabolic syndrome, if you've got these metabolic problems, we need to have another, we, we got to have another entrance ramp and, and, and exit ramp in and out of the metabolism that, that may be uh, an offering of some help. Secondly, 
once you get a, a, a some familiarity, you know, does the color in your heart, does it radiate out around you? You can play with that. Um, does it radiate within you throughout your vascular system? So you begin playing with those colors yourself within your own body and what, what you might know about uh, the subtle body itself and, and that level of purification. Secondly, I then, when it feels right and I have my hands on the client uh, and it's, it's, it's an intuitive moment, I will then slow my hands down and you, they're usually slow anyway because I do mainly biodynamic practice and I will visualize the client um, I only I start with three colors. I start with dark blue, aquamarine, and crystal clear. Those are the three colors of the medicine Buddha for healing. So I visualize the client as a deep ocean blue. And again, just from the perspective of the fluid body and the deep ocean. And then aquamarine, because that's, that's a beautiful color that's consistent in the ocean regularly. And it's, a, it's considered to be in Medicine Buddha, uh, a very, very medicinal color. And then crystal clear is, is the clear light mind of, of enlightenment. So these are all medicinal colors. And those are the three colors I like to start with before doing the rainbow colors. And, I usually wait for the second or third session with a client, and I do run one rainbow color at a time. I don't try to do all five of them. It's crazy. You you have to have your hands on. You you visualize a color and you see what the reaction or response is based on your perception of primary respiration and stillness. And thirdly, I never have the client get involved with visualization yet. Um, I don't feel that that's um, appropriate or adequate just yet. Um, so that, I'm leaving it at that because it's an open question that I would say, no, not yet. Um, and that's how I've responded every time I've asked that question. You have to get a sense of practice with these colors first, of how it functions, of, of how, it, how your hands respond, how your mind responds, and how the client responds. Um, so, and so far it's been very safe. There's been no side effects or reactions. Yeah, thanks. I, I, I think I'm I'm getting it uh, a bit or I'm feeling it. And I, I also like how you, as, as I hear it, he said like, don't do, don't do rainbow, that's crazy. And I think actually, if because so, I could, I could imagine people listening and saying, oh, I'm gonna, you know, or, but I think if someone's doing rainbow, they're not actually doing rainbow, they're doing, each one separately and they're multitasking in their mind to do it. And it's really just an ego trick to say, Hey, I can do all these things. Um, but really there's just, we can just do one thing at a time. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm really intrigued by this in a lot of ways. It's not part of my normal practice. Um, and I'm excited. Um, yeah. I'm excited to, I'll start just by sitting with this, um, just by sitting with it and, and, and just doing it with me. But it, it, I don't know if it's just because it's such an embodied part of your practice that when you speak about it, it feels so rich to me or, um, but it, it, it does. And so I'm, I'm going to stop talking and just feel it for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the, the part of the feeling Andrew is, um, The starting point before we do the colors is, is what do the five elements feel like in the human body? And I mean the five elements in the Indo-Tibetan system more so than the, the Chinese system at this point in time. In, in those cultures, children get courses on the elements, on how the human body is constructed via the five elements. We don't get that. So... When we talk about these colors, it's predicated upon one's knowledge that one already has an understanding of how their human body is constructed of the five elements and how that functions. Mm. And so that, yeah. that is part of the teaching that goes with this. 
Well, I'll share with you. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but am I, am I, I'm certified as a yoga therapist and a big part of my yoga therapy program uh, was uh, we did a lot with mudras and we did a lot with uh, elemental mudras. And so I actually taught a course for a while uh, on teaching mudras for the five elements where we would sit with uh, each a mudra for each element, not with colors associated with it, uh, but with the, the principle and, and the sense of that. And so very possible my experience with that and my openness to that is what is resonating as you speak about it. It's possible. Yeah. Well, I could see, Andrew, just um, with that skill level you have uh, and having already taught uh, the mudras and their association with the elements, um, that you, that could be an integrated practice now, you know, adding in the colors um, and then making that a therapeutic uh, offering to people. So, yeah, I, I've often thought that every single hand position we use whether it's no matter what type of manual therapy, every single hand position is a mudra, every single hand position. So, yeah, I mean, where I sort of got to, uh, <laughs> whether it's because I'm, um, you know, a contrarian or other, was that all mudras are essentially statistical representations. They're just the, the, this particular mudra may be this, it seems to be that, but each person is going to have their own experience of it. But what there really are, are their intention settings. There are a way where you say, okay, I'm going to do this thing and have an intention. And similar, if we have our hands on our clients uh, and we're listening and we're allowing, there's an intention for whatever. And so we're, we're using these, these, you know, mudras sometimes translate to seals or locks, but we're, there, there are ways of, of putting our body or, or structures in a place where we're and an intention of energy can flow and be with it. So I, I totally, I never thought of it as the way you said it. Uh, and hearing it, I completely, I completely understand that. And, yeah. and, and I agree. I just wanted to kind of circle back to what we were talking about in terms of the state of tissue with imbalance of the cardiovascular system. And I have in the last, like, I don't know, two years of taking a deeper dive into working with the body, the fascia, via the neurovascular and nerve work. And it's been so profound in the ease that it does for me with working with people and also how clients, especially coming from a rolfer who's like known for being more heavy handed and everything like that, whenever I'm going into the lighter touch to be able to access those systems, it's it's just remarkable how when you just tap into where the fascial restrictions that can be exist around the neurovascular nerves, when they have the ability to kind of move through the, through the tissue better, how the overall tone, um, sometimes globally or just in that immediate area that I'm working, how that subtle work just changes the tissue and changes the the structure and coordination of the client. And it's it just it's been fascinating because it's been a bigger part of my work um, in the last year than just kind of your traditional elbow into the tissue 10 series type of work. Yeah. And, um, and it's and what's kind of fun with what you said is a lot of the clients, especially when I'm kind of in, you know, really in this dance of modulating the, you know, the pressure and, and I'm always kind of explaining like what I'm doing and why the touch is light now. And what they comment is, and maybe this might be a product of where I live being in Boulder. Um, but they're like, wow, it really feels like you're a feels like you're listening. And also that I'm in a spiritual realm with their body. And for me, I'm kind of come from a spiritual orientation. I don't bring that into my practice at all. Um, but I just it's it's been fun to hear that response because I feel like there's just this other level of embodiment that's happening that isn't just about the biomechanics and moving more efficiently when they're doing their hikes or climbs or biking or whatever. 
that they have this new, and maybe it's not even new. It's just an awakened conversation of a, a spiritual self through their actual tissue. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, I thought so too. That, that's, but that's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, and um, I don't know, maybe I'm being biased because this has just been like more where my brain is. But I, I, as we've been having this conversation, and then again, the way I kind of explained to it is like, oh, that's the nerves. But really, we're, worried, we're, we're working with your brain. Your brain's an extension of the nerves. And um, so anyhow, it's just, I think, without getting too hokey pokey about it, I think there is it's just a true connection, the mind, body, and spirit. I mean, yeah, yeah, right there. Um, yeah, the connection with mind, body, right there. Um, it's interesting because, um, and I don't know if this is, I'm not trying to interpret um, what you just said, but um, I, I work with a woman, Ellen Grosser, uh, and she's uh, she's one of Robert Schleip's. Well, she's in the study group with Robert Schleip in Germany. And so she's the, the main person I have a lot of conversations with about the metabolism of the fascia. And, you know, the importance of, of slowing down the touch, uh, especially if the fascia is compromised. Because when you've got metabolic syndrome and you've got these this complex inflammatory conditions going on, it means that the the inflammation gives off a lot of waste products. People don't realize that, and that those waste products they have to get out of the body as well. And but because you have a compromised metabolic system your elimination systems are compromised. And when the elimination of the inflammatory waste products gets backed up into the lymphatic system, from the lymphatic system, those waste products then metabolically get backed up into the interstitium. And it begins interfering with the global um, interstitium, which is the interface between the fascia and the rest of the body at at one level. But it also means, and I keep having this conversation with Ellen, that therefore the fascia and the collagen and the other molecules uh, within the fascial system, it gets backed up into the fascia and begins interfering with the metabolism of the fascia. So you can see that these multiple layers from the fascia all the way down to, to the gut, to the inflammatory process of how it gets backed up. And it makes sense that when you slow down your touch, you increase circulation. This is what's, and it's, we're increasing microcirculation. And to be able to increase microcirculation, especially around the nerves, is exceedingly important because that's where it really gets seriously backed up. And you get long-term problems potentially with dementia and so forth. So uh, I would say, you know, if you could market what you're doing, Nikki, and, you know, and maybe relabel it, you know, and you could, you know, you could really uh, have a lot of fun, <laughs> you know, as kind of a spiritual guru there in Boulder, you know? Well, I, through all this, I was just thinking, like having a little joke with myself, but like, to stay within the scope of our practice, but to also meet the needs of, um, you know, the dietary component of it all is like offering complimentary like wheatgrass shots as they're leaving, <laughs> just <laughs> give like, a little boost. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Or 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 before you leave, we could do a wheatgrass enema and then go from there. So uh, I don't know if my office mates would be down with that. My very first practice was in Aspen, and it was shared with a Pilates instructor, a Pilates instructor slash chiropractor, and a colonics. And sometimes those sessions just didn't—they were kind of unpleasant. <laughs> well, just to but, say historically, and you might enjoy this. Um, I worked my way through becoming a rolfer at the Rolf Institute. 
I set up a colonic machine and I did colonics. That's that's how I, I managed to get the money for my tuition. And so I worked on a lot of the Rolf teachers and Rolfers and and that was back in the the early 80s. It was very, very interesting. Very interesting. So you got some shit uh, I'm done. I'm sure having <laughs> I was gonna say with the uh um you might have gotten a leg up in it because you had you had a, a more close relationship with some of those teachers than other people. You saw a part of them that even in the Rolf uniform wasn't seen. Yeah, that's that's true. Um yeah, it's interesting. Very interesting. I, I really enjoyed that time of my life. Um it was a very important time in my life. Yeah. Yeah. So um your book is coming out in November. You must be very excited for after all this time. It's really exciting. Uh, people can find it, I'm, I'm guessing, on, on the usual channels, either directly through you, through Amazon. How do people, how do people get access to the book? It's all available right now. Um, you can go to my website, shayhart.com, or you can, you can go to um, Amazon. You can go to Barnes & Noble. It's all available for pre-sale. Um, it's called the biodynamics of the immune system, balancing the um, energies of the cosmos with the body. And basically everything that we've talked about, including the whole spiritual component, um, is there. I've already um, started writing my next book called The Biodynamics of the Heart, um, Quintessential Compassion for the Degenerate Age. But I think I'm going to take a break. It's a lot of work. I've been really working hard. So, so thank you, Andrew. That's that is where you can uh, uh, pre-order the book, and it's got a beautiful poster, an embryo poster um, that's an insert. So it's a gigantic wall poster of the human embryo and the stages of the human embryo that a um, a German artist I commissioned. Uh, beautiful watercolor drawings of the human embryo so excellent i mean that alone sounds like worth the purchase of a book yeah and it's reasonably priced i was i, I was shocked i think the price is uh, 40 dollars um i thought it would be well over 80 or 90 dollars for the the size and scope of the book but they they priced it very reasonably so it's very accessible and it covers all the the metabolics and it also covers um, working with real food. Uh, it also has a section on spirituality. Um, and it has a huge photographic um, section uh, going over in a lot of the things we talked about in the hands-on work. Big, big hands-on work section. So over 300 illustrations, photographs and illustrations. Great. I look forward to purchasing Thank it you. and reading it. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. Same. And I look forward. One of the things I love about this podcast is, besides talking to people, is sharing sharing with people out. So I not only look forward to, to reading it, but I look forward to knowing uh, other people who may not have known about it now will. And that's, that's what I really love. So I'm looking forward to that. Good. Well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Nikki. This has uh, been wonderful spending time with you all again. Yeah, and I guess at some point we need a third, a third one for. Uh, there was one. I, I don't remember what exactly we said. There was one part. It might have been the embryology. There was one part you said. Well, that'll be a whole another podcast for. So we may hold you to your word for that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I go through, when I go through again, I'll, when and I edit it, I'll find out what that was, and then you'll get a knock on your email door, <laughs> but not for a while. Well, I do love talking about the embryo, so. Um... And actually, I'll be out in uh, Colorado in September of 23. I've been asked to speak at the Cranial Conference in Estes Park in September. So I will uh, be coming out Please there. reach out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And Nick hopefully in my family, I have family that's in the West Palm. So I would love to connect with you when I make, I think I'm coming down there in the spring. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me know. Well, Michael, thank you for your time as always. Yeah, you're right. And welcome. I hope you continue to have a swift recovery with COVID. Sorry to have mm. heard that. Oh, yeah, it's, that could be another conversation, maybe next time. So that's that's a spirit, <laughs> a big spiritual elevation as well. So yeah. 
Yeah, well, we uh, you look you look wonderful. So I'll share that. I'm glad to see that you're you're recovering and you look so great. You look you know healthy. Thank you. I'm getting caught up in my sleep, and that in and of itself is a miracle. <laughs> mm. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll be in touch as Thank we you. are, and and enjoy the day out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, let me know when you're uh, when it gets posted, so I'll put it out on my network. Thank you, Andrew. We'll do. Thank you. Thank Michael. you. Have a good day. Love you guys. Love you too. Bye. Peace. Thanks for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Michael at shayhart.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you would leave a positive review of the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps other people find us, and we greatly appreciate your support. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at Touching Into Presence. Bye for now.